Good morning, church. It is a joy to open the word with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Morgan. My wife, Christina, and I have been attending WCC here for about three years. Uh, we have two little girls, Sophia and Corey, who are awesome. And we have the privilege to co-lead a community group with Chad and Audrey Barlow, which is great. So I have a question. How many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis? Most of you guys? Okay, good. That's the way it should be. <laughs> if you haven't read them, go do it. Um, for those of you who haven't read the books, Narnia is this land that Lewis writes about where Aslan, the great and good lion, rules, and the Narnians are called to courageous adventures and battles against evil. And in one of my favorite books, The Silver Chair, uh, in the story, a few of the Narnians are sent on a quest by Aslan, and they find them in this place, they find themselves in this place called Underland. This is an underground realm in a massive cavern ruled by an evil witch queen. And Underland is like its own little world. The queen has this fake sun up in the sky. There's this whole dark city full of people and houses and markets. There's even a big lake that they have ships sailing on for trade. And this whole realm is under an enchantment so that all of the people living there believe that Underland is the only world, the only reality that there is. Now, there's this moment in the story where the Narnians have accomplished their quest and are trying to escape back to Narnia, but they come face to face with the evil queen in her palace. And the queen immediately casts a spell on the Narnians to bring them under the same enchantment that binds the rest of Underland. And as she does this, she begins to ask some questions. She says, there isn't any Narnia anymore, is there? Isn't my son the real son? And the Narnians initially fight back against the spell, but eventually they succumb and they believe what the queen says. There's no place called Narnia, they say. Your son in this cave is the only real son. Aslan is just a childish fantasy. And they come to the point where they believe they truly believe that Underland, the fake and dismal copy of a world, is the only reality. And that the true reality, the land of Narnia, with its free air and bright sunshine and good friendship and happy courage, is completely fake and nonsense. Under the evil enchantment, their view of reality is completely backwards. They believe that the false reality is true, and they believe that the true reality doesn't even exist. And in order to be set free from that enchantment and believe and pursue the good land of Narnia again, something outside needs to break that enchantment. So I wonder if you can think of ways the world we live in is like this. What are the things you may believe that are completely backwards from the upside down kingdom of God? In what ways do you live like the things of this world, of this age, are truly real and the things of God and of eternity are merely an imagination? Do you feel the pull to build up treasure on earth that will pass away instead of building up treasure in heaven that will last for eternity? I certainly do. 
Does it just make sense to pursue status and approval in the eyes of the world as opposed to seeking the approval of Christ? I feel that all the time. Almost everything in this world is ruled by worldly, natural wisdom. An evil enchantment that deceives us and blinds our eyes and confuses our minds from understanding reality as it is truly defined by the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world creates a false reality and draws us into living like that worldly, natural reality is the only thing that is real and true. This morning in our text, we will see that God has given us a solution, a way to break free from the enchantment. As believers in Christ, his spirit sets us free from the natural wisdom of the world and enables us to understand and live according to the true and better reality of the wisdom of God. And so as we explore the text, we'll see three main points that Paul lays out in his passage for us. First is wisdom clarified in verses eight, sorry, verses six through eight. Second, wisdom revealed, verses nine through 11. And third, wisdom understood in verses 12 through through 16. And then we'll wrap up with three personal applications. The context of our passage, as we've heard the last couple of sermons, is that the church in Corinth is tied up in worldly systems of status, wealth, power, and eloquence. And they're tying their identity to those things rather than to Christ. They believe those things to be good and valuable. I mean, they get the esteem of others. They can think well of themselves. But most insidiously, they think that God thinks better of them because of the things that they're connected with. They're living according to the wisdom of the world. They're under the enchantment, living like the message of the cross that Paul has preached to them is not true. But remember, they do believe the gospel. They are saved, but they're going back to the way of the world, living according to the flesh. They, like all believers, have this tension between walking by the spirit on the one hand and the pull of the desires of the flesh on the other. So Paul has written in chapter one in the beginning of chapter two to remind them that the message of the cross is a message of weakness. It is foolishness to the world. And to remind them that they were saved by the power of God, not because of anything that they did. And now in our passage this morning, Paul pivots from reminding them of the past to instructing them for future and present living. He begins by explaining more fully what he means by the wisdom of God. And that brings us to our first point. Wisdom clarified in verses 6 through 8. Paul says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Notice how Paul starts this section. He's saying that in spite of what he said up to this point about wisdom, which sounds kind of negative, he said uh, just from the immediate context here, he preaches the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom. He says it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So you could infer sort of a negativity about wisdom. But Paul's saying, in spite of this, there is a good wisdom. 
And he's going to clarify things about the wisdom he preaches compared to the wisdom of the world, which he's been criticizing so far in his letter. Before jumping into that, I want to make one important note. Paul says he imparts wisdom to the mature. Note that all believers have been given this godly wisdom. The difference between a mature believer and an immature believer is not that one has received wisdom and the other one has not, but that the mature believer receives and applies that wisdom. So Paul says that this wisdom he imparts is not of this age or of the rulers of this age. The wisdom of this age is a false, natural, worldly wisdom devoid of the power of God and that considers the ways of God, Christ and him crucified, to be utter folly. It is like the evil enchantment of underland, the deceptive and blinding reality that for those in this world and of this age seems so real and to make so much sense, but that Paul says is doomed to pass away. The wisdom is not truly real. It doesn't pass the test of time. It will eventually come to nothing. However, Paul does preach. The wisdom he does preach is the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? That's a massive question that would take ages to dig into and define, but I'll try to summarize briefly what Paul means when he says this. The wisdom of God is God's redemptive plan established before the ages and worked out through history to ultimate restoration in the future. It's his plan to save people from the penalty, power, and ultimately the presence of sin. And this plan centers on Christ and him crucified as both the way to be saved and as the way to live the upside-down, cross-shaped life as a follower of Christ. A couple texts to clarify that. In chapter 124, Paul says, Christ, he calls Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in verse 30, he says, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So look at the contrast between these two wisdoms. The wisdom of the world is of this age. It is fleeting. It will pass away. But the wisdom of God was decreed in eternity past before any age and will last into future eternity. It will never pass away. This, the wisdom of God, is the true wisdom that defines reality. It's like the good and great reality of Narnia that no matter how enchanted or confused one became, was still present and true. And consider this, at the end of verse 7, the wisdom of God is ordained for our glory. When Paul says that, that makes me pause and ask some questions. What does it mean for our glory? Isn't everything supposed to be for the glory of God alone? Well, it is, but part of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God is that when we take up our cross and follow Christ, when we live for the glory of God alone, that will result in the greatest joy for us. And in eternity, in the presence of Jesus, the consummation of our glorification, seeing him and being made like him. So we see this contrast of two types of wisdom, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this age. So which reality will you believe? Which wisdom will you obey? The wisdom of God that leads to our maximum joy and eternal glory, but doesn't make sense to our minds that are steeped in the ways of the world? Or will you obey the wisdom of this world that can seem to make so much sense, but leads all who follow it to pass away and die? Back in the text in verse 8, Paul says, none of the rulers of this age were living according to the wisdom of this age, understood the wisdom of God. 
to bring salvation by way of the cross. Even though they had been given the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing to Christ, the reality of the cross was a stumbling block to them, and they couldn't understand what God intended to do. This is what Paul says in verse 7, when he says it's a secret and a hidden wisdom. The wisdom of God, the message of Christ, and him crucified is, as Paul said in Colossians 1.26, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. But if the wisdom of God is a secret and hidden wisdom, how is it revealed to believers? This brings us to our second point, wisdom revealed in verses 9 through 11. Read with me. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In verse 9, Paul, opens, or Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah to drive home the point he just made. There's absolutely no way a human on their own by any means of their physical senses or their minds or their imagination can come remotely close to attaining or understanding the wisdom of God, what God has prepared for those who love him. But in verse 10, we see the solution to this problem. The wisdom of God that is of a completely different reality and completely unimaginable to us, that on our own we have no hope of grasping, God has revealed to us through his spirit. The incomprehensible has made known. The secret and the hidden has been revealed to us. Before moving on, I want to take a quick step back, zoom out, and look at the big picture of how and why the wisdom of God is hidden from men apart from the Holy Spirit. One might ask the question, how could a good God do this? Why would he let people's eyes be blinded to salvation? To answer these questions, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and gave them Eden, a place of abundant life, filled with beauty, overflowing with good food, and most amazingly filled with the presence of the Lord, where they could walk and talk with him. There was one kingdom, the kingdom of God, in which Adam and Eve were sub-rulers of creation, and there was one wisdom, the wisdom of God, to which Adam and Eve had full access but we see in Genesis 3, the exposure of a second kingdom. Satan came and tempting Adam and Eve with second-rate copies of what they already had induced them to sin by disobeying God. The result was that Adam and Eve were separated from him, the source of their spiritual life. They had rebelled against God's wisdom and cast in their lot with a second kingdom, the kingdom of this world, of this age. They fell from being a king and queen under God and his kingdom to being slaves of Satan in the kingdom of this world. They fell from being spiritual people to being merely natural people. They, by their own choice, fell under the evil enchantment of this age that deceives and blinds people from being able to understand the wisdom of God. And by extension, all humanity going forward from then would be born into the kingdom of this world under the spell of its false reality. So this means that you and I, are, by nature, apart from Christ, sinful, deceived, and choosing our own way rather than God's. So we see there are two kingdoms, two realities, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world of this age. And these two kingdoms 
cannot be reconciled. Those of us in the kingdom of the world cannot on our own reach the kingdom of God. But, but in spite of this unbridgeable gap between the two kingdoms, the Holy Spirit reveals to us both the reality of the kingdom of God and the way to enter the kingdom of God. As Paul says in Colossians 1.13, the spirit, that reference might be wrong, the spirit through the message and power of the gospel has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So back in the passage in verse 10, Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. Paul then goes on to explain how this revelation works. The spirit has the capacity to do this because he is omniscient. He searches everything. Get this, even the depths of God. This isn't some piddly service level wisdom. It's not merely an introductory package to Christianity. No, the spirit knows the very depths of a great gospel and a good Lord and reveals those things to us. The rest of this section is just a simple logical progression. Nobody truly understands the thoughts of a person except for that person's spirit. And so the thoughts of God and his wisdom cannot be understood by anyone without the spirit. And now in our text, Paul goes from bigger picture theological teaching to personalizing these truths for his readers. This is the final section of our passage, wisdom understood in verses 12 through 16. I'll read it here. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of him who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul says, we have received. We, he's speaking to the church, to regenerate followers of Christ. They once had the spirit of the world and were of the kingdom of man, but they have been placed in Christ and given the spirit of God. I want to remind us all that this is true of you if you have received. Uh, if you have repented and believed and placed your faith in Christ for salvation, you have received the spirit of God. And Paul says, why? So that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Being given the spirit is not just getting information and wisdom, but also the ability to understand it and the power to apply it. Now look at the end of verse 12 at what we can understand, the things freely given to us by God. What does that mean? What has been given to us? Well, there are the immediate and obvious things. The spirit, like we've just seen, and salvation through Christ. But I think there's more here for us to glean. God is not a stingy Lord of his kingdom. And just like in the garden, we saw him give good things and overflowing abundance. So now those of us in his kingdom have been given blessings freely and abundantly. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give to us all things? 
And at the end of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. We've been restored to the amazing abundance of the kingdom of God and the garden only now for us through Christ, it's even better. As spiritual people, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness and joy and satisfaction. So get this, and this is what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 3. It doesn't matter whether you follow Paul or Apollos or Peter. Whatever value you think you'll get from that, you already have something better. It's already yours, so stop living like a natural person according to the wisdom of this world and realize that in the kingdom of God, the true reality, you already have more than enough. You don't need anything else. So rather than living according to the evil enchantment of this world, break free from that and see that just like in the garden, whatever the wisdom of the world tries to offer you, you already have something better. This world can only offer dismal copies of the true great and solid realities that are already ours. To accept the wisdom of the world is like being content with the pale, fake sun and underland when we know that the free air of Narnia is real. Back to our text in verse 13. Paul simply says that because of all of this, he doesn't teach with human words, but with spiritual words that will be understood by spiritual people. And spiritual words are words that are according to the wisdom of God in alignment with true wisdom. Verse 14 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person is someone who is not saved. He is without the Spirit of God, captive to the kingdom of this world, and he rejects the wisdom of God. It is folly to him. It doesn't make sense to him in more Paul says that he is not able to understand it. It's not that he refuses to understand, that he could understand, but just chooses not to. It is that the natural, unregenerate man cannot, by nature of what he is, understand or make sense of it. And the message of the gospel of Christ and him crucified is foolishness and nonsense. It is only by external, supernatural, divine intervention, taking that natural, spiritually dead man and making him a new creation filled with the living Holy Spirit that he can make sense of the wisdom of God and believe the gospel. This is what we mean when we talk about conversion. It's not a natural man in his wisdom reaching God, but God in his mercy sovereignly saving a helpless human. If you're here this morning... And this message of the cross that we've been discussing doesn't make sense to you. If you're believing the false reality of the kingdom of this world, I want you to know that the Spirit of God wants you here today to listen to this message of salvation. And if you have any desire to be saved from your sin and live according to the wisdom of God, that is evidence that the Spirit of God is already at work in your heart. And I urge you, to turn to Christ, repent from your sins and believe the gospel. If you do that, God's word promises that you will be saved. You'll be set free from the kingdom of this world and given new life in Christ. But if you don't turn to him, you'll remain a natural person under the evil enchantment of this world, 
unable to attain the true reality of the wisdom of God. You'll remain in bondage to the kingdom of this age and you will die eternally separated from God. So if you have questions about this, please talk to whoever invited you here or talk to me or one of the other church leaders. Moving on in verse 15 in our text, I think Paul is using a bit of a play on words here. When he says the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. No one. The Greek word for judges and judged is the same, and it means to discern or to understand. He's saying that the spiritual person, in contrast to the natural person, understands all things. But the spiritual person is judged by no one, meaning that those of the world, the natural people, will not be able to understand or make sense of the life of a believer. I'm sure you know of people who live like this. A life lived according to the wisdom of God that doesn't make sense to worldly natural wisdom. Think of David and Nicole, the family that we sent out from here last January. It doesn't make sense to the world to leave everything and go spend four to six years learning languages and then 10 plus years living somewhere hard to live in order to do kingdom work. Or think of something closer to home, a family that will move to a different city just to plant a church or a husband who faithfully and devotedly loves his wife for life. Parents who raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, someone who builds their entire life around the pursuit of Christ to know him and make him known. The list could go on, and I'm sure you can think of many examples. Many examples of the Christ following upside-down life that the world cannot understand. But this is how we will live our lives if we live according to the wisdom of God. Paul brings our text, a section of the word, to a close uh, with the culmination of this rather rhetorical question, for who has understood the mind of the Lord? This is a quote from Isaiah 40, and I want to just read this verse in its context, starting in Isaiah 40, verse 12. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in its scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and accounted as dust on the scales, Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. On to verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This great and glorious and holy and transcendent God cannot be understood by a natural person, a normal human. But, but he is our God. And we can understand the mind of the Lord because we have the mind of Christ through the Spirit of God. If that doesn't blow your mind and stir your soul, 
I don't know I will. This is what Paul tells us. We have the mind of Christ. We have the wisdom of God. After walking through this passage, I am simultaneously astounded by the goodness and the beauty of the wisdom of God and grieved and convicted by how little I truly live like this is the true ultimate reality. This is a sermon primarily to my own soul. But I believe that there are three applications that the Spirit would have all of us make as we leave here today. These applications are to see, to seek, and to savor. See, seek, and savor. First, we must see. We must see that there are two competing versions of reality, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. We must see that the wisdom of God is good and the wisdom of the world is death. We must see our need to walk by the Spirit according to the wisdom of God. Immediately after our passage, Paul continues his thought that he began began in chapter 1. He says, chapter 3, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? It is possible to be a believer filled with the Spirit of God, able to understand his wisdom and still live like a natural person, according to the evil enchantment of the kingdom of this world to live only in a human way instead of like a new creation. And Paul is teaching us that it's madness to live like that. It's completely contrary to what is truly real. There's always going to be a battle between the flesh and the spirit and the life of a believer, between living like underland is the only reality and living like a Narnian. We've been given the spirit, but we will always have to fight the desires of the natural man that draw us to live our own way and the world's way instead of living a life in submission to the spirit of God. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say to you, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So how do we know if we're living according to the flesh, according to the wisdom of the world? How do I know if I'm living like the kingdom of God is not real? Well, as we see in 1 Corinthians, the church was pursuing worldly systems of status and wealth and power and eloquence. And we're identifying with those things rather than with Christ. And that was them walking according to the desires of the flesh. So what could this look like for us today? Here are a few ways I think this can show up in our lives. We pursue wealth and the pleasures and comforts it can buy. If I can just get the right house or just go on that vacation, then I'll be happy. Or we look at someone who has the house and the vacation and we covet that and grow discontent and let that rob our joy. We seek status or plant our flag in the camp of those who have status or political power, fixing our hope on temporal influence. We prioritize our convictions 
on secondary or tertiary doctrines at the expense of Christian unity and love. We think poorly of a, a brother who listens to a preacher that we don't like. Or we'll grab our phones and mindlessly scroll through a feed seeking some sort of entertainment or fulfillment. Some of these things aren't even bad in and of themselves. It's not inherently sinful to be wealthy, for example. But anything, but when anything becomes an idol and takes the place in our life that Christ should hold as a source of joy and the ruler of our life, then we are living according to a false reality, according to the wisdom of this age. Ultimately, you will be ruled by Christ, the wisdom of God, or you will be ruled by the fleshly wisdom of this world. So I pray that we would see, that we would see clearly, and the Spirit of God would convict our hearts of the way that we are, as Paul says, of the Corinthians being merely human. And second, second application, seek. Having seen our need, let us seek to live according to the wisdom of God. How do we do this? By seeking to know God and walk by the Spirit. <clears throat> in Galatians 5, right after the passage we just read, starting in 22, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is walking in submission to and dependence on Him, living as He would have us live according to the wisdom of God and fighting against our sin. This doesn't happen easily. If we don't actively pursue Christ and walk by the Spirit, then we will be pulled away from Him back towards living like we're in underland. It is a battle that we fight day by day and moment by moment, but you are not alone. You've been given the Holy Spirit to guide you and give you power to obey him. Back to our examples from the first application. What might it look like to walk by the Spirit in these situations? Instead of looking for ways to use wealth for your pleasure, look for ways to give generously. Instead of coveting what someone else has, rejoice with them and be grateful for what God has so graciously given to you. Instead of fixing your hope on temporal systems of status and power, anchor your hope on Christ and the ultimate eternal restoration that he will bring. Instead of letting your doctrinal conclusions on non-core issues lead to conflict and division, humbly and graciously seek to understand the person with whom you disagree. Romans 14 has great instruction for this type of situation. Instead of thinking less of someone because of who they listen to, understand that God works through faithful preachers and be humble and gracious to those who have different preferences. Instead of mindlessly scrolling, engage with your time purposefully in light of eternity. I hope these examples are helpful and practical, but at its core, walking by the Spirit according to the wisdom of God is living with every aspect of your life fully surrendered to him, living in obedience to him, empowered by him, and for his glory in all things. So let's seek to do that. <clears throat> and finally, may we savor, may we savor the blessings of God that are ours in Christ. Remember what Paul says at the end of chapter three, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. 
you have been already been given all things and the world has nothing better to offer you. All the wealth, all the power, all the status, all the security, all of anything the world can give is but a drop in the ocean compared to the smallest remnant of the magnificent glories that are yours in Christ. So pursue joy in God and savor the hope of future glory. Psalm 16:11 says, "You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." And to paraphrase John Piper, you can't get fuller than full, and you can't get longer than forever. And that is the joy that is yours in Christ. So lean into that, pursue that joy and savor it. So in conclusion, there are two versions of reality. There are two irreconcilable kingdoms. And just like the queen in Underland cast a spell to blind the Narnians from believing in Narnia, so there is a deceiver in this world telling us that the wisdom of God in the way of the cross is foolishness and fake. But we have the spirit of God and are members of the kingdom of God. And so let's see and seek and savor and live like the kingdom of God is real. Pray with me. Father, I'm overwhelmed by your great beauty and amazing goodness and your astounding mercy that you would save us and transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. I pray that you would open our eyes to see and understand this reality and to live day to day and moment to moment according to your truth, your reality. I pray this would be something that sinks into our hearts and impacts us every day of this week, not just today. Thank you that we have the Spirit. Thank you that we have fellowship with you. I pray this in your name. Amen.